You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Uh, Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means that when we read the Bible, uh, we are hearing God speak. Today we have two passages in the book of 1 Corinthians. The first one, uh, chapter 9, verses 19 to 23, and the second, chapter 15, verse 1 to 11. So please join me in uh, chapter 9, starting at verse 19. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law. Though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. To win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. And chapter 15, verse 1. Now I want to make it clear for you, brothers and sisters, The gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Matt. If you've got a Bible, please keep 1 Corinthians 9 open. That's where we're going to be working through this morning. Lord, I pray. Father, I pray this morning as we hear from your word that we would be convicted of our need for Jesus. Not only our need and the grace that you've shown us in sending him in our place for our salvation, but the need of all people for Jesus. And so as Adam said, we pray that our heart might break and burn, that they might also come to know the hope that we have. Amen. Now, 
It, it is a very odd thing that's happening here this morning, isn't it? It's very odd. Look, we're in a hotel, but there's no little, you know, mints and notepads on the seats that you normally get. You know, the pens. It's the only reason I come to conferences or hotels to get those things. I wait till everyone's gone, and I scoop them up and I take them home. Um, now, I, I only really know Adam here in this church. I know a few of you. And this is not a comment on Adam. I don't want to take him as a barometer of what Cross and Crown is like. That would be unhealthy, wouldn't it? Um, but maybe it wouldn't. But this is an odd thing that's happening. This many people coming together, not just on Sunday, but throughout the week as well for many of you. We've sung, which is something you culturally generally don't do in Australia, isn't it? Apart from karaoke bars and churches, apparently. We've heard from an ancient text. We've closed our eyes and, and spoken to a God that we can't see with our eyes. And now you've got some bogan from up north <laughs> opening the scriptures to you. What does that even mean? This is an odd thing that's happening. And not only odd in, in the gathering here, but throughout the week as well as you, you meet together in homes and pray. It's also odd in the number of people that are here. Because if you just took the church across Australia, for example... Uh, objectively speaking, the church looks like it's on the decline. It doesn't look healthy. Just one measure is, is people's attendance at church, like this gathering here on Sundays. Uh, we know our churches are getting older. The average age of a church in Australia is about 60. Uh, we know they're smaller. 50% of churches across Australia are under 50 people. That's tiny. And we know there's less of them. Before COVID, there was about 6,000 Protestant churches across Australia. Uh, we know that 5% of those churches annually were closing their doors. It's about 300, I think. Now, we don't have the stats yet, but I'm absolutely confident, absolutely confident that COVID has accelerated that trend. Now, let me ask you this question. As you think about this odd moment that we're all sitting in here, this community that you are a part of here at Cross and Crown, why are you here? What has brought you to this place at this point? Now, if you're new to Cross and Crown, if you're visiting, if you don't know Jesus, if you're exploring, if you're hearing the things that Tim spoke about, and you think, I might be interested in that, I might not... My hope today and over the coming weeks and the coming months is that this morning at the very least you would hear about the goodness and the grace of the Lord Jesus that creates community like this under him and that you would want to explore more and give your life to him. That would be my hope for you this morning. But if you're a part of Cross and Crown, the answer to this question about why you are here and part of this community will determine what it looks like for you to move forward as Cross and Crown, what the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years is going to look like, what drives you, what shapes your decisions, what will keep you here as part of this community, making decisions that are sacrificial. Now, this morning, I want to get an insight from Paul the Apostle. 
and how he answered questions about his own life and his own ministry. Now we're jumping in, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. We're jumping into the middle of Paul's argument here. So it's good for you to read around the rest of it when you've got a bit of time. I'll give you a little bit of context and insight as we go along. But just look how he starts in verse 19 here. Look how he starts this section. Although I'm free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Made myself a slave to everyone. Now that's odd, isn't it? People who are free don't voluntarily give up their freedom in order to become slaves. But that's what Paul's saying he does. Now, slavery in ancient Rome was, was a di- little bit different to maybe how we perceive slavery now. But look, it certainly wasn't. Whatever it was, it was not a status to be desired. It wasn't something you entered into voluntarily. It was not a lifestyle choice. You were born into slavery, you got sold into slavery, your country was conquered and you got put in slavery. But the hope was always, in all those circumstances, that you would attain freedom. That's the goal there. And even here, if you were a slave in ancient Rome, you had one master. Then while your social status might have been low as a slave, your authority at least was derived from the person that was your master. So there was some level of protection, some level of safety. But notice what Paul says here. He's not a slave to one person. He's a slave to how many? Anyone. Everyone. He has made himself a slave to everyone. Now, we'll come back to Paul in a second because I want to draw your attention to the Corinthians who he's writing to here, this letter. Now, Corinth, if you, if you can picture Greece and you've got kind of uh, Turkey and around, Corinth is this little, little bit where the, 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 the uh, water divides, little mar- the kind of central point where boats would come in, trade would come north and south as well. Hugely influential port. Thoughts would come here, people would come here, different cultures would mix here. A very important part between Greece and Rome and Asia Minor, mix of cultures. Now, what we know about the Corinthian church, if you read through this letter, is that they all have very strong ideas about what it looks like to be part of this community. And they all want to exert their rights. They all want to exert their rights. So this letter to the church in Corinth that Paul writes, he's dealing constantly with these fighting factions. So you see in chapter 1, verse 11, he's responding to a letter from Chloe's household. And he unpacks in the first six chapters issues that he's heard from this letter from Chloe's household. He gets to chapter 7. He's obviously heard some other things that disturb him. And so he starts to pick those issues off. Some of them are very, very disturbing. Not going to go into now, don't we? Being distracted by them, but have a read. 7 to 10. And then 11 to 14, he lets loose on a whole bunch of areas that they're just completely messing up. And at the heart of the problem that Paul gets to as he deals with them, these, these Christians in Corinth, is that they are exerting their rights over everyone else. Over and above loving those around them, which is where you get 1 Corinthians 13 from. Now, I know there's some people here who are getting married soon. If you're using 1 Corinthians 13 as a marriage passage, beautiful passage. Just want you to know, Paul is saying to them, this is not what you are like. You've forgotten what it is like that's at the heart of the gospel. And so you have this contract, contrast. You have the Corinthians who are all about exerting their rights and winning. And you have Paul who says, 
I've made myself a slave to everyone. I'm willing to set aside my rights. For what purpose? Look at the end of verse 19 there. In order to win more people. In order to win more people. That's why he's willing to do it. Now you see how many times in verses 20 to 22 he uses that word. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. Now what's he winning them to here? What does he mean by that? There's a few other places in the New Testament that, he, that, that this word win is used. Uh, Jesus uses it in Matthew. So if you go to Matthew 16, you can look it up. Now if you want, this is Matthew talking about what you, should, what you can give up in order to win the world or not. And he says, what will it profit a man if he gains, wins, same word, the whole world and forfeits his soul? Paul, when he's writing the Philippians in Philippians 3, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may win, gain Christ. Now just so we're clear in this passage in 1 Corinthians 9, what Paul's talking about, you see he changes the word. He used a different word right at the end of the sentence in verse 22. I've become all things to all people so that I may, by every possible means, save some. Save some. He is willing to enslave himself to others, to anyone, if it means they don't forfeit their soul, that they gain Christ, that they are saved. Whatever it takes. He becomes like a Jew, like one under the law, like one not having the law, like the weak. Now, notice here he says, like them. He doesn't become one of them, he becomes like them, as them. Even he says here, the Jews, which Paul the Apostle culturally was a Jew. That was who he was, it was part of his identity. But he says he, he still needs to become like them. It seems an odd way to put it for Paul, because he was a Jew. It's like me saying to you, it feels like me saying to the Anglo-middle-aged greying men in North Brisbane, I became like the Anglo-middle-aged greying men in North Brisbane. I think that's not a transition very much, Derek. You know, just a natural state of being right there. But see, in that, I think we're seeing something significant about how Paul sees himself. That is key. He sees his defining feature not as his Jewishness anymore, but something else. See, Paul could flex into different cultures and subcultures because he knew the defining feature of who he was wasn't his cultural background or his job or his financial status 
or his gender. It was that he was in Christ. The defining feature of Paul the Apostle, in Christ. A new creation. He wasn't calling people to a new religion. He wasn't calling people to a new culture. He was not calling people to to a new ideology. He was calling people to a person, Jesus, so that they might have life. And he already had a model for this. He'd already seen someone become all things, enslave themselves in order to win and save. He wasn't the first to do it. Now he followed a creator who became part of his creation. A creator who, who walked amongst his creation, who experienced what it was like to be part of that. Who knew love and friendship and betrayal as we know them. And Jesus' expressed purpose in coming was that he might save that which was lost. His expressed purpose. This is how John puts it. At the start of his gospel, you read John chapter 1, he says, Jesus was in the world and the world was created through him, yet the world didn't recognise him. He came to his own and his own people did not recognise him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God. There's the model right there. There is the ultimate contextualisation, the ultimate sacrifice for our benefit. Just pause for a moment. Just reflect on the enormity of that. And and if you're a Christian as well, just reflect on the challenge for us of that. And the rebuke, at least for me in here, as I've been reading over it and mulling over this, the rebuke in there. In In the social circles that I'm in outside of work, where I'm mixing with people who don't know Jesus, as my kids' school, parents there, my kids' soccer team, I've got to know the parents there. So often, so often my behaviour is defined less by being like those around me so that I might win them and more so that I might be accepted by them. That's just my default. In fact, the more I've been pondering this, the more I've realised it's even closer to home for me. Most of my family aren't Christians. And I've just kind of snuck in there. And I'm more interested in not rocking the boat than I am in seeing them being saved. Or at least that's what my behaviour tells me. I'm blending because I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to put people offside. I walked in, worked in the corporate world. You know, I didn't want it to hinder my career. I was there for me. I wasn't there for them. Too often I feel like I I have such a love for myself that I'm willing to become like people in order that I might feel loved by them. But Paul... He had such a love for people that he was willing to become like them 
in order to save them. And Jesus had such a love for people that he became like them to die for them so that they might have life and life to the full. What a contrast. And here's the last thing I want to point us to before we pull this together. You see verse 23, I mentioned this before, that Paul mentions, now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in its blessings. Paul's given his life for the sake of the gospel in verse 23 with the hope that many would be one and share in its blessings. Now, question is to read Paul, sometimes you can think, well, can we just chalk Paul's life and Paul's ministry and Paul's passion and Paul's sacrifice up to him being an apostle? Is Paul the exception to the rule rather than the rule itself? Now, the problem with writing Paul off as an anomaly, though, is that Paul's convictions don't spring from his commissioning. You know, the Damascus Road, Jesus appears to him. That's not where his convictions about life and other people spring from. In fact, that's why we read 1 Corinthians 15 before. Because the basis of Paul's convictions about his life and his ministry and world, where the world is heading and who Jesus is and how he fits into all that springs from this. He says, 1 Corinthians 15, what we received, we passed on to you as of first importance, Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Peter, Cephas, the twelve, five hundred more, and James and Paul. Now, if you keep reading 1 Corinthians 15, what Paul is going to argue there is if the resurrection did not happen, then you can just go back to living your life as you were living it because there's nothing to come afterwards. But if the resurrection did happen and Jesus did rise from the dead, as Matthew 28 confirms for us, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he is the only one who can provide hope after death. If that is true, it is not just true for Paul. That's true for everyone. All people, in all time, at every place. And that is an incredibly uncomfortable cultural moment for us and for Australia. Jesus is very culturally uncomfortable. Because if he is the king who has risen, and the only one to have ever risen, if he is the creator of all things, then he will push into the very corners of your soul, the very corners of your life, and he will ask the most uncomfortable questions of anyone that you know and make the most awkward and inconvenient observations about your life and thought and behaviour and relationships and how you see the world and what you value. He's very uncomfortable. He points out what we already know to be true, but try, keep trying to keep at bay, that the world is lying to us. It cannot give you the satisfaction and security that you want. And it will never give anyone else that satisfaction and security. It cannot bear the weight of your hopes and your expectations and your dreams. Because every time you place it on something in this world, it crumbles and it will fade and it will disappear. It is not eternal. It can never bear that weight. And that is uncomfortable. Because they are the very things 
that we so often, and this world has built their whole world around, things that will crumble. And this is the beauty of Jesus. He doesn't just critique, he offers an alternative here. Not just a critique, an alternative. What he puts in, this, in those things place is something solid and beautiful and eternal. Forgiveness from the Creator for rebellion, for sin, for wrongdoing, for shortcoming. Adoption into the family of God. Security that can't be whittled away by the fickleness of age or by the stock market fluctuations. A new home, that's what you looked at last week, isn't it? A new home that won't perish, spoil or fade, where God will dwell with his people. These are the truths that drive Paul. And these are universal truths. And for Paul, it shapes how he sees everyone around him. He sees everything differently. He sees everyone with a new lens. Not as Jews or Gentiles, non-Jews. Not as rich or poor, not as slave or free, not as men or women. He sees them as people who absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, need Jesus. And who don't know what they're missing out on if they don't have him. He longs for others to experience the same grace that he has experienced. That's what drives him. That's what shapes every part of his life. I had a meeting just last Friday in a suburb in Sydney uh, where the median house price is $5.5 million. That's probably not a lot of money to you. Uh, (laughs) You could buy half of Brisbane with that. $5.5 million. It's a beautiful part of the world, it really is. It's amazing. Right in the harbour. It's where the uber-rich live. It's where the celebrities live. It's a beautiful place. I parked, I was driving my friend's multivan, you know, the VW multivans. Yep. Um, (laughs) Parked behind a Porsche 718 Cayman. And on on my way out, driving out of the suburb, I was sitting behind an Aston Martin DB11. Go look them up. You've got to pay, I think, just to look at them on the website. I get envious in those places. I want to live there. I was there and I'm thinking, I really feel a calling to plant a church <laughs> in this suburb. <laughs> I want to live there. I want those cars. I want to have that lifestyle. I was people watching. Because, you, you know, people in those suburbs, it's, I just start thinking, what do you do for a job that you can live here? Uh, I'm wondering, you know, where do they get their money from? So successful. And as I was watching, waiting for my friend to turn up for this meeting, I was rebuked. I realised I'm looking at this with entirely the wrong lens. Now, they were certainly rich and successful, but they were lost. They were lost. They were certainly materially comfortable, but they had no idea what they do what was going to happen to them when they died? I'm sure they didn't want to think about it. They were going to end up in the same place with me. Even if they were parked in their Aston Martin DB11. Doesn't matter. And they had no hope at all. They placed all their hope 
in this life, right now, and it was going to be over just like that. They didn't need another million dollars. They needed Jesus. The question is, who's going to bring it to them? Probably not me. Who's going to bring Jesus to Melbourne? Who's going to bring him to Melbourne East? Who's going to bring him to your family and your friends who don't know him? And if you don't know him yet, can I ask, will you come to him and have life? As we finish, I want to return to this question raised at the start. Christian, what are you here for? Are you part of Crossing Crown for? I said before, I led the, the planting arm of Reach Australia. And while we've seen 118 churches over the past 10, 12 years launched across the country in the network, a vision is 200 more by 2030. But can I point out to you, I started at the start by in the interview saying there's 6,000 Protestant churches in Australia. About 5% are closing annually. That's about 300 churches a year. Now, that means just in order to keep the status quo, we need to plant 300 churches a year. Now, my vision is 200 in eight years, and that is a stretch goal. This is 300 churches every single year. Extrapolate that out by 2030. That means we need to plant about 2,700 churches or so, maybe a bit less depending on where you start, an incredibly daunting task. But that is a task I want to encourage you that we must be praying for and committing our lives to in some way, whether it's church planting or revitalising churches or growing churches, not because we necessarily need more churches, but because we need to reach the lost. People need Jesus. 93.5% of people in Australia are not engaged in any meaningful way with Christianity. I was having a great conversation just before this about someone sharing their faith with someone at work. And what we realised, what we're talking about is a lot of people not only don't know Jesus, a lot of people don't even know someone who knows Jesus in Australia. Boy, there's work to do. That's not someone else's challenge. That's not someone else's burden. If you know Jesus, that is your challenge. That is your burden. Who, if not us, if not you, will bring Jesus to them? So let me ask you to pause on this question I've been asking people lately. If you're going to stop now and recalibrate your life, and the one thing I could guarantee you is that whatever you decided to choose now, to give your life to, you would not fail. What would you do? When someone asks me that question, it's easy to brush it off, but I want to to ask you to pause. Think deeply. Don't brush it off. It examines your motives. Examines your heart. It removes your excuses. Because this is not a question about finances. This is not a question about security. Because what I'm saying to you is God will take care of those things. I'm saying we don't need to be sensible. 
So they don't drive us. It will reveal that question, what you ultimately long for. What do you want to do? Now, how would you answer that for Crossing Crown here? If you knew Crossing Crown couldn't fail, where would you want to see it go? What would you be willing to do? Now, it is a challenge in this community because what's happening here is an anomaly. Most churches are not this vibrant. You're young. You're growing. So the challenge then for you is not to take pride in what is happening, but to work out how it is you use what God is doing here and the resources that he has given you to make an eternal impact for the gospel in Melbourne and beyond. There's five million people in Greater Melbourne. Some of them are escaping to Queensland, but it sounds like some of them come back down here as well. That's five million people. There's 200,000 people just in this kind of Monash city area here. That means, this church, let's say 200 people here. That means you represent 0.1% of people in Monash. That's a lot of people who don't know Jesus. That's a lot of people without hope. What will you do about that? That's not a question for Adam and a select few. That is a question for you as a community. This is your burden. This is your privilege. How will you win Melbourne for Jesus? How will you help them see and understand the gospel of grace that has so gripped you and should grip you? How will you do that? Too many churches choose to become cruise ships instead of being what they should be, that is life rafts. You know, life rafts. No one is in the life raft arguing about whether they save people or not. Do I pull that person in? I'll be less comfortable if I pull them in. I have to give up a window seat if I pull that person in. That's not how life raft works. At least as I understand them anyway. That's not how it works. People in the life raft, they're thinking about how they grab as many people as they can into there in order to save them. Is that how you're picturing crossing ground? You would rather experience discomfort and see people saved than comfort and keep people at arm's length. Or are you subtly seeing this as a cruise ship where the primary goal is just to fulfil your desires here, to keep it at the status quo, just to enjoy drinks on the upper decks? And I say, don't be a cruise ship. I said a while ago when I was talking to people, we've learned nothing else from the last two years and so we all know what happens on cruise ships too soon <laughs> here's the last thing here's the last thing my hope Adam flagged before my hope is that over the years that across Melbourne that the people in this room give their life to seeing the lost one. Plants dotted across the city. Crossing crown plants. Plants out of crossing crown. That are reaching the lost, seeing eternities changed. Can I say, there is nothing that even comes close to the significance of seeing eternities changed. 
nothing that even comes close. The question for us this morning and for you as you move forward is that grace that you have experienced in the Lord Jesus, that hope and security that is yours at great cost to him and absolutely free to us, what will you do with that for the good of this city and your friends and your family who don't yet have him? Let me pray. Father, we are amazed at your goodness and your grace to us that you would become one of us in order to save us. Father, we pray that we might be so clear and captured by your grace that the things of this world might grow strangely dim, that we would see people as you see them, as sheep without a shepherd, as those who are lost who need to be found. And Father, we pray that we would give our lives to this mission. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.